Hello! My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I wish I had more time to play Starfield. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I should probably spend less time playing Starfield. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we're drinking the Rochefort Trappist Triple Extra. In the second, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't, yeah, that happened to me too. Oh my gosh. So listeners, we opened our beers and for the first, I'm actually, now that it's happened, I'm kind of shocked that it's taken us seven years for this to happen. Both of our beers erupted in our hands. I like to tell you we're usually more professional than this, but we're not. This is exactly what the show is like. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's a good beer. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, I'm really bad in that. Like, what I'm saying is I recognize the bottle, and I probably had it, but could I put the, that that label to a taste? Probably not. But my, I was saying my husband is, like, about a decade ago went through a pretty heavy, like, Belgian beer period where we drank a lot of Belgian beer. We even went to Belgium. We went to... Um, we went to a place in, I think it's in Brussels, called Beer World that has like hundreds of bottles of beer, like different kinds. Uh, that's a uh, uh, podcast goals, Ralph, is uh, reading reading some uh, European education research in a uh, European uh, beer garden. Uh, I think we're probably going to use some of that tape because that was fun. Uh, and so um, why don't we, why don't we, Lawrence, you want to roll us forward? What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? This month, we talked with Dr. Elizabeth Tipton about the research support for growth mindset interventions and the flaws in last month's meta-analysis. Together, we consider how growth mindset should be part of a more comprehensive approach to helping students improve. Later, we read how listening to music reduces our ability to use our working memory for academic tasks. Their laboratory study shows music has a cost, but we wonder whether the cost of background classroom distractions might be higher. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read why meta-analyses of growth mindset and other interventions should follow best practices for examining heterogeneity, commentary on McNamara and Burgoyne, and Burnett et al. This was written by Elizabeth Tipton, Christopher Bryan, Jared Murray, Mark McDaniel, Barbara Schneider, and David Yeager. And this segment, you may notice, is very closely related to the segment that we did last month where we read one of those meta-analyses. And some of the feedback and engagement that we got from some prominent researchers in the field, including folks whose work was commented upon in that meta-analysis, suggested that we bring on a guest who knows a lot about this topic so that we can discuss it even further. And so to that end, we have with us as a guest the lead author of this paper, Dr. Elizabeth Tipton. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Elizabeth Tipton is a professor of statistics at Northwestern University and the co-director of the Statistics for Evidence-Based Policy and Practice Center. She is a statistician who works in education and social science who is interested in thinking about how we use evidence to inform what we do in education. I queued up this paper because we were told to read this paper by folks who wanted us to have a better understanding of what was going on in the growth mindset literature. So Dr. Tippin, can you tell us um, maybe in broad strokes, why do you work on growth mindset stuff? Oh, thank you. Um, Well, that's a long story, but I'll try to be brief. Um, I have been interested in 
evidence-based practices in education for a long time. Um, I do a lot of work thinking about how we design studies in order to test interventions. And I've been particularly interested in how we design such studies to test interventions um, in the environments in which the evidence will be used. So I might call it um, generalizability or external validity or at scale, but I want to know not just does this work in some schools that I've picked in my neighborhood that will, are willing to be in my study, but will it work in schools in other parts of the country as well as around the world? So um, to that end, uh, probably back in 2014 or 2015, I was um, connected with David Yeager, who was planning a national study of learning mindsets, which was a big evaluation of a growth mindset intervention in a random sample of U.S. high schools, um, which is maybe the only study of this type. We randomly sampled, um, I think ultimately we ended up with like 79 high schools in the United States in the study, and then randomly assigned students to receive either a growth mind, mindset intervention or something comparable. And, but they were very interested in these generalizability issues. Uh, the random sampling, maybe making sure we oversampled certain subgroups that they thought it was likely to work with, so certain kinds of students, at-risk students that they really thought this intervention would work with, as well as kinds of students in schools that they thought it wouldn't work to really test a hypothesis about um, under what conditions a growth mindset really matters. And this is a much longer answer than you probably wanted. And, um, and so I got involved with this community of scholars who were, I thought, trying to really do the cutting edge, best practice science. Um, they wanted to test not just does it work everywhere, but does it work under these particular conditions and even does it maybe not work in these other conditions. So I got I got involved with a group, several of whom are on this authors on this paper, that was multidisciplinary. Um, and we did the study. Uh, I think the results of that study came out in Nature in 2019. Um, and then I also do work in meta-analysis. So I also have been working as a statistician in uh, methods for combining results across studies to try to make sense of a literature in which some papers say things work and some in which they don't. Um, and I had been kind of starting to be on a, on a sort of a tear of being kind of a grumpy middle-aged professor who's like, why are, why are people doing bad meta-analyses? Why are they not doing what we know are the right kinds of things to do? And in particular, my gripe in meta-analysis is about um, people focusing on the average effect. So David Yeager contacted me and said, hey, there's these two meta-analyses that are going to come out and they're competing and I want you to look at them. I think that one of them is really poorly done and the other one seems to me to be one you'd be happy with. Will you think about this and figure out what's going on? And so that's what I did. You mentioned that National Growth Mindset Study, and we did read it and discuss it on a segment of the show um, back. It was like episode 32 or something like that. It was a long time ago, but it's in the show notes. So we we did a segment on that big old paper, and we were very impressed with it by at the time. What are the implications of these two competing meta-analyses and what you're seeing, especially with your with your expertise on thinking about policy implications? What do we say to classroom teachers who many, many folks are, have been excited about growth mindsets, have seen positive impacts in their classrooms, and now they're like, do like, do we keep going? Do we change the course? Do we like, what do we do with all of this? My sense of the literature and, um, from this meta-analysis, uh, as well as from the national study, which I think are fairly consistent findings across both, is that the um, 
Growth mindset is the kind of intervention that works if you're the right kind of student, that if you are a student who's already getting A's, already taking hard classes, you could think of this as um, you're already doing well. So how am I going to improve that with a growth mindset? I'm I mean, maybe I can improve many aspects of that, but it's going to ha- be hard for me to see improvement. You're, we might call that a ceiling effect. Like there's not, you can't get a something better than A's. So it's going to be hard for us to see if that made an improvement. Um, on the other hand, if you're at the very bottom end where you um, don't know how to read, but you're in high school, for example, no amount of me telling you work harder, like your brain can grow without extra resources is going to help you. But if you're a student that's sort of in the middle or that is struggling and that sort of maybe has given up on school, you think like, well, I'm not smart. I'm not good at math. That's why I'm not doing well at this, um, that the intervention works. It actually can. It, the, and the intervention can help students um, see that they don't need to give up, that they that learning involves failure. Learning involves, you know, some sort of muscle pain, things are growing, and that putting in the work can um, pay dividends. And I think that's partly, so it's sort of an intervention that works when it needs to. And when it doesn't work, it's not, it's not, it's not a negative effect. It's not like hurting people. It's either helping you or it's kind of neutral. I'm glad that you, you mentioned about the ceiling effect because we don't really even know that it's not helping them. We're just the things that we're measuring can't we can't see that they're not and so like if you've if you have if you can imagine a a type of student who is a high achieving fixed mindset student who has been maybe skating through school but they haven't actually hit a challenge that has made them question their abilities well assuming they continue on to higher education or even postgraduate education um they can and hopefully in their life, they will hit something that is new to them because that's where the growth will be, either in the sum of human knowledge as they're finding out new things or just personal growth where they hit something like, wow, this isn't easy for me. And so the possibility that these have effects later, which we, you know, I don't know, I don't design studies, so I don't, asterisk, um, but uh, like I'm not really invested in that, so I don't uh, I don't know how we would measure it. J- we just we it's not easy to measure downstream psychological effects, and we know that from papers we've read that say that when you do like this is slightly different, but when you teach directly teach elementary school students self regulation techniques and practice, they don't show a statistically significant increase in change in behavior until two years later, but they do. They, if you don't do them, they don't change their behavior. If you do give them the interventions, they will change their behavior two years later. So when you have the, the like, well, it helps these kinds of kids, but not those it's maybe, maybe it doesn't help those, but maybe it does in ways that we haven't figured out how to assess yet. Well, and and I appreciate that you're referencing that paper. I queued up another one from just a couple of months ago where we were reading. This was now um, reading research where they had promising previously validated interventions for reading instruction that when you go from a contextualized responsive uh, intervention application to a global like everybody does this all the time kind of an intervention, then the effects disappeared. And they're like, 
So what's good for some is not is very, very rarely good for everybody all the time. Okay. And that to any educator is not going to be surprising. Like people who listen to the show, like, oh, it depends. It's kind of always the answer. And like we we laugh about that in the research world sometimes, but it is absolutely true that education is a social and contextual endeavor. And so like I don't think, you know, maybe somebody can read back the discussion from last month. I don't, we were never all that interested in this idea that the impact of growth mindset as it is understood in the literature right now is zero. We were never, we were never on that boat. Um, go ahead. And that wasn't even like, that's not even what I thought the paper was. I thought the paper was telling us that it doesn't really matter if the kids believe uh, whether their intelligence can grow or not, um, the effect is probably coming from their commitment and scaffolding of effort. And I'm like, so so don't change anything that I'm doing in the classroom as a consequence of this paper. Like even if even if we have no problems with the findings, like the practicality of improving student cognition and developing their abilities and helping them achieve more. Um, all comes from the same behaviors. So it, it's not really us in and like that sidesteps the question of anti-essentialism, right? Like you still want to teach people that they are not reduced to certain qualities. And so like you're, you can still like say, Hey, uh, that, that, that smart was kind of a fixed mindset compliment. Can you think of another kind of compliment you, that you can use to describe the situation? It doesn't challenge me to change that behavior either. So whether or not the kids have a particular like, definition, semantic understanding of what intelligence is and able to do is kind of irrelevant for my goals. So even if they had the best methods on earth, their findings weren't really influencing me in a, in a specific way. This does lead me to a question from one of your comments a moment ago about how there's no there's no cost, there's no harm. We're not, we're not harming students by doing some of these growth inter, growth mindset interventions. And while generally that's true, you don't see a decrease in performance. I would argue there is an opportunity cost, especially when a piece of their consideration was how many uh, how many like capitalist products have been created around growth mindset material. And so there are dollars that you can be spending on any number of things. And one thing that I noticed in your commentary that I'd like you to comment on is a lot of the, your particular commentary was focused on the, the measurement considerations being as how that's your area of expertise. Uh, but I read in the McNamara uh, review that another major criticism was the operationalization of growth mindset and how the intervention is very often not one intervention or one that is consistent. And they call it out a couple of specific examples where mindset as, as it is narrowly or more concretely defined as my view of whether my intelligence can, is malleable is very close, you know, it's so proximal and interwoven with ideas of grit and ideas of, you know, what's the role of practice and the quality of practice and like all of those things that are all, they're like, again, I think an educator would be nodding right now. Like I feel like, yeah, all those things are sort of part and parcel of if we're going to go towards growth mindset. However, if we are not precise in defining in the research, which elements of it are having an impact, I can imagine school districts who spend all their time and energy trying to persuade a student, you can get smarter, you can get smarter, you can get smarter. And they're not attending to the fact that they're giving bad practice. And so what they're what the students are doing is not actually leading to improvement and is undermining their credibility. Do you have any comments on their critique of the operationalization of growth mindset? 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So this is actually a, a real problem for most interventions. Um, so you know, most meta analyses, most like combinations looking across the literature, what is hard is that the intervention is not exactly the same in every study. It's not measured exactly the same. It's not implemented exactly the same. And that's, you know, that's just a fact of education in the social sciences um, compared to medicine where it's like take the drug or don't take the drug, right? Like that's like a pill that you take. Um, here it, it's, it's, it's different. And um, this is hard. I mean, it's a hard problem. I mean, I think, I think it's also a hard problem once you move to school. So I think it's not surprising that a psychologist would make this critique because it's a very scientific critique. Uh, in the science, I want to isolate what exactly part of this intervention is the cause or is not the cause of um, this effect. But the reality is once you move to schools, it's very hard to isolate th that exact mechanism in the same way because you're not going to get growth mindset in the, you know, there, there are a variety of ways that you can, that, you know, very variety of programs and a variety of approaches that can be built into an English curriculum. It can be on its own. There's a lot of different oper operationalizations of it. And so I, I think to some degree, I think for the scientists, it matters a lot. I'm not sure it matters that much, the the nitpicky parts of that as much for the, the people actually making decisions or using it. Now, now, you had another point in there that I think was also really important, which is that people are spending money on this and time on this. And so there's an opportunity cost, right? Like what I'm doing here, I'm not doing something else. Um, and I think there's a, a couple of things within that. Um, the intervention itself is actually a very brief intervention, right? It doesn't have to be something that takes a lot of time. Um, the intervention also, from what I've learned, and this is very much me sort of extrapolating some things that I learned from the National Study and Learning Mindsets, but also from some other conversations with people in the field, um, is it's not enough just to tell kids that, you know, you can do better. Like, you know, this is the critique of grit too, right? Like you don't, you know, it's not enough to be like, yeah, you're really struggling and you're in this under-resourced school and you're from like a historically excluded population and you've got all of these things working against you, but you should just know that your brain grows and that's going to solve it, right? That's, that's not how I've seen it operationalized by the scientists doing this. Um, it's more, it's supposed to be more, your brain can grow, and I'm going to help you learn what the resources are to help your brain grow. So there's a behavior component to it. There's not just the belief the belief and the words are not enough. You need the behavioral component to it as well. Um, and, and that's about being able to seek out resources, seek out learning, like seek out the things that you need in order to learn. Um, and have, and that means for schools, they have to, can't just have the words, you have to have the resources available in the environment in which you've set up classrooms, not just in which you say that kids can, their minds can grow, but also that you've shown that in the behaviors you set up in the classroom, right? So if I tell you, your kids, um, yeah, kids, your brains can grow, but then I have only high stakes tests and all of the decisions are based on these high stakes tests in the classroom. And I put all the smart kids, smart what in quotes, over on one side, and I'm ranking kids continually in the classroom. No matter how much I say I believe in growth mindset, the kids can see from my actions that I don't actually believe that they're that in growth mindset, right? So th there has to be the classroom activities, allowing kids to you know learn things, make mistakes, and redo them. For example, um, that really shows it's it's a culture of growth mindset. Um, 
so that's one part. And then the other part, I think, really, I keep adding on more parts. Um, the, the other part is, I think that's a good question in general for interventions. Um, you mean this question of, um, I have to buy this one or that one. Um, um, some of them, this is just a, a framework or a way of thinking about the school, I th- you know, about the, you know, the environment you've created in your school, whereas others are much bigger commitments. You know, I'm buying a reading program and it's going to be expensive and time can, you know, it's going to take a lot of time. And so there is a reality in which people are, are comparing things. And I don't think scientists do a great job at, at thinking about that. We're often thinking about our one intervention versus something else and not thinking about the whole environment. I want to I do just a quick response. And then again, I know that I'm, I'm taking up more mic time than I intend, but the, um, you, some of your comments, uh, just now, especially around the operationalization and like the, it, things are messy. Right. And I, I really want to carry that, that water, right. As a researcher, like that's a, I really, I want to continue to identify with practitioners and as a practitioner and embracing the, you know, the ecologically nested nature of what we're doing as opposed to the sterilized experimental nature of how many psychologists are trained. I just, I want to, I'm, I'm with you. I really am with you. Um, but I also think if if I'm understanding with, even though I'm not formally trained in meta-analyses, uh, I really want to understand the, I think that some of that, some of that mismatch and operationalization, I suspect explains some of the heterogeneity and success of the interventions. And so I think from a research standpoint, accepting that distribution is an important thing to understand in the social sciences and to to your credit specifically your paper makes that argument i think as clearly as anything i've ever seen in my life uh, like if i still taught methods i'd use that i'd use that that paragraph it's a great explanation and i think that that's true and i think that better clarifying what exactly is being measured in individual studies will allow for future meta-analyses to better explain some of that heterogeneity because from a, a uh, what a grounded perspective, somebody who is in a lot of classrooms thinking about those re- research characteristics, I think it explains a lot. I think that the quality of the interventions and at really subtle levels, one of the notes that I made is that I would pay folding money to read a good qualitative study of how some of these uh, like very, very lightweight interventions of growth mindset or otherwise, some of these very lightweight interventions, what does it look like when a school adopts them? What are some of the ripple effects on what they touch or do not touch? And how do those things happen? Uh, In our discussion last month, I think one of the things that, that Lawrence and I were kind of thinking about was so much of this hinges on if we're doing a growth mindset, you know, 20 minute intervention with, with students, but does that prompt the teacher to be thinking differently about what kinds of activities they're providing in the classroom and what kind of language they choose in their student interactions? Some of those things that are incredibly subtle that are really difficult to quantify and are incredibly important for what's going to happen at a cultural level and ultimately for individual learners in that room and their success or lack thereof. And so I think that it is both really, really important and incredibly difficult to to quantify, which I think is, is consistent with some of your comments. And so I don't think that the, the quibble about how we operationalize growth mindset is purely a scientific question. I, I, I was telling Lawrence in some of our pre-recording time, there are examples from my work, my life this month, where I've, I've been sitting in on discussions where we're going to measure growth mindset. And I had to be like, well, this is not actually growth mindset. Like this is important. This is what we care about. This is not actually growth mindset. Uh, and we need to do a more precise description of this thing. 
so that we can go and measure it well, and then we can report it faithfully, so that then a future meta analysis doesn't get it wrong. So the so I think I think that whole body of critique, I I do think it's got some merit. I, I do. So I don't know. Mm hmm. No, I I would I would actually say that's true. Uh, I was it was making me think about implementation fidelity or implementation just in general. Um, and, and adaptation, right? So often people, schools often will take things and then they adapt them to their environment. Um, and a lot of what we've studied in, in, you know, in, in scientific studies are very clean versions of an intervention. We've really made sure it is the full intervention, but we don't have studies of those other things. So um, I was just part of a National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine NASEM, um, committee that looked at the future of education research and sort of made these arguments for what the future of education research should look like. And one of the things we called out in that report was adaptation and implementation, being able to tell people not just this is what this evaluation found under ideal conditions, but what schools really need to know is sort of what are the things that are essential about this intervention? What are the things that are kind of, oh, you can do them or you can't do them. But if you don't do these essential components, you're not going to see the the results of this. And so that's asking researchers to really think about mechanism and hone in on which things are essential components and which ones aren't. Um, so, uh, which I think is great. I think it's, I think it's actually very, very important. Um, the other thing I was going to say is a little bit of a story, which is um, the, this sort of hits this, this attitude versus behavior component. Um, in the national study of learning mindsets, we had a series, we asked teachers. So there was both a student component and then of the sampled students, we then looked at, we found who their math teacher was. And then math teachers did like a, a bunch of stuff too. Um, and so the math teachers, we asked them, you know, have you read Carol Dweck's book? are you familiar with growth mindset? Do you have a growth mindset, right? All of these questions kind of about attitudes. But then we also asked um, two other things that we did. One, we asked them, we gave them these like case study things and asked them how they would handle them, um, which was sort of getting at behaviors. And the other was we asked students in their math class, do you think your math teacher has a growth mindset? And, um, and <laughs> I feel like you know where this is going to go, right? That not much of a relationship, right? I read the books. I think I have a growth mindset. Nope, that's not actually enough. That very often people do those. And then the behaviors that they say and what their students say do not map onto that. So to me, that points out that you can change. You can read a book. You can think you've changed your ideas. But if you're not changing your practice, um, then who cares? right? Like who cares? The intervention is not just in your brain. It has to be also in your class. Uh, when I read your paper, this paper, it reminded me of something of another paper we read a, a while ago. Uh, and that uh, in your conclusion, you kind of made a comment about how there have been improvements to statistical analysis approaches that have existed for like 30 years and people are still not using them. And that we feel that in education too, because sometimes, you know, you, you're this period of your life where you're deeply entrenched in learning about education and then you trans into, transition to practice and then you phase out of that and you kind of get crystallized at this particular place, but you're, you didn't burn out. So, you know, you're, you're still doing pretty good. Um, but it can be frustrating when you see practice 
that you know is outdated. Um, so I, I wanted to identify with that a little bit. And then another, just specifically, um, I appreciated that in your approach, you said, okay, we're going to take the data of this paper and then we're going to reanalyze it with these other modern approaches uh, to see what happens then. And that reminded me of the, uh, I don't have any idea how long ago we read this, but the summer slide paper, Ralph, where we took the stats, the, like the, 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 yeah, the seventies, you know, they, uh, they, they, they were like, Hey man, our kids are just, everything is terrible. They have three months off in the summer and then they come back and they don't know anything. And here's all the stats to prove it. And they reran all that data with modern analysis. Like, nah, there's, there's not really a summer slide. That's not really a real thing. So it just like, we can look at old information with better tools to get better information. I mean, it's true and right archaeology, right? It's true in, in molecular science, and it, it can be true in data analysis as well. So I just wanted to say I appreciated those perspectives. Thanks for coming on. This has been a really, really uh, interesting and thought-provoking conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing it with all of our listeners. If there are folks out there who have enjoyed hearing your perspective on using statistics and using research and policy, where can they find more of the kinds of work that you do? Oh, thanks. Um, I'd say the easiest is to go to my website, which is www.bethtipton.com, or to just Google Elizabeth Tipton at Northwestern, and you'll find my university websites. Document everything. For our second segment, we read The Reverse Mozart Effect. Music disrupts verbal working memory irrespective of whether you like it or not. This was written by Raoul Bell, Laura Meet, Jan-Philippe Rohr, and Axel Buckner. This was published in the Journal of Cognitive Psychology in 2023. The paper explores the effects of music on cognitive performance, specifically verbal working memory. It finds that music can disrupt verbal working memory regardless of whether the individual likes the music or not. However, the distracting effect diminishes with familiarity and predictability of the music. And I thought it was fun. Yeah, this was a, so this was kind of a counterbalance to like so much meta-analysis work and commentary and perspective taking. And my goal, I queued this up to kind of get back to like an empirical paper, right? Like directly in opposition to what Dr. Tipton said in our previous segment, don't read primary studies, read meta-analyses. And I was like, no, no. I want to read primary studies. Yeah. I thought it was a nice throwback, right? I was alive when the Mozart effect was in popular. I remember being around when everyone was supposed to get you to listen to classical music. This month and the last one, we spent a lot of time on growth mindset. That's None of that's going to change my practice. This one gives me a decision point because I have known that lyrics interrupt your working memory processing if you're listening to music with lyrics and you're splitting your attention. So I have been advising my avid kids that if, if, you, if you can't just study because you get distracted by other things and you need to calm yourself down and you're the, you, you're, you insist that you, list, you study better when you're listening to music, then curate a playlist that has no lyrics and make that your study playlist. And um, this paper has now forced me to recognize that that is not necessarily the best advice. I changed my mind back. Uh, I, I think that's probably more often than not advisable I, based on their experimental results, which is interesting. 
I will say that if you have a dedicated study playlist and it's the same one that you've been using for the last eight years of your education career, you're going to be mitigating some of the complications. So that's true too. So it may not be as bad. It might be better for them to learn to study without the music playing. But if they're playing the same songs that they're studying to in high school and those are the same songs that they're studying to in college and it would be even better if those songs weren't like rhythmically complex they were just kind of pastoral background music uh might not be might not be all that bad well and that's probably a good spot to get into some of the nuts and bolts from the early parts of this paper i will tell you that i loved in their opening sections they said, it's a common perception that background noise is probably distracting unless it's music. Here's a study that shows that. And it was really useful that the authors actually cited, I think it was some of the author's previous work, where they literally asked people, like, what do you think about different background sounds and the data support? People and students generally understand that if you're in noisy or chaotic environments, that that noise and chaos is going to be distracting with the specific exception of music. And anybody who teaches in a classroom, I'm guessing is probably going to be able to think of plenty of their own experiences where students want to walk around with a headphone in, or you're doing some work time and I want to put in my headphones to help me focus. Like that's, I've, I've had that experience. I suspect that it's probably fairly common. And the authors wanted to unpack what role does music specifically play in, in impacting our working memory? So as we listen to music, how are we processing that information coming in through our ears? And how, what cost does that processing have? They did, the, they did three experiments and they're all, they're all really close to each other. Um, people were wearing headphones. They were exposed to either silence or uh, a particular piece of music and they were presented with numbers while they were listening and they had to recall those numbers later. That is the base. That is what all of them had in common. How does music that we're hearing, how does that translate to what, these are my words, how does that translate to the number of bits that we have to manage, the number of information pieces that our brain has to encounter and deal with? Because every bit of information that it has to deal with as uh, auditory information is one bit that it cannot devote to whatever we're working on. Yeah, I think we, it's hard for humans to internalize that ignoring things takes passive effort. And so even if you're used to the background sounds, your brain is still saying, like that information is coming into your mind and your, your, you know, parts of your mind have to say, no, no, that's not important. Ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. And that, that takes up a little bit of your background processing, which you are not using to think about the things that you're focused on. And what their experiments laid out with a beauty that is only possible in the lab yeah. is that the better we can predict what kind what kind of music is coming in the less of a cost that it takes so if this is a song that i know intimately well that i've listened to hundreds of times my mental model of what my ears are going to encounter is really really accurate and so i only periodically have to check in with what my ears are hearing and say 
is that is that correct? What I expected to hear is that actually what I'm hearing? Yes, all is well. This is fine. We can ignore it and we move on. But if the if there's lots of different things happening in the in the audio profile that we're encountering that draw our attention, that has a much higher cost. And so if it's music that we don't know well, then we're gonna have to encounter it more frequently. If it's unexpected noise with lots of different like punctuated sounds and changes of rhythm or unexpected insertions of noise, all of those things have additional costs. Oh, we gotta to attend to that. No, we can ignore it. Oh wait, what was that? Is that what's coming next? Okay, no, we can ignore it. Oh, that was a key change. That's oh, just a key change, it's fine, I, I can ignore that. And so the more different events that we encounter in the sound profile, the higher the cost. When kids ask to study while listening to music, you should say no. I don't think that's true. I think you're wrong. No, you should. I'm gonna, and I teased it at the beginning, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna unpick it now, uh, because this was in a lab, and so their comparison conditions was quiet and music, and those are not actually our two choices in a school. That's fair, and especially it because we need to think about the environmental sound profile in terms of bits of information, it can be pretty quiet in a classroom. But for an adolescent, you know, a 15 year old who's sitting in a mostly quiet classroom, but let's imagine that I am particularly interested in a young person who sits on the other side of the room. There's somebody I want to get to know better. And so every time they cough or sniffle or turn around or one little, little bitty whisper, that's really important information to me. And so even a classroom profile that's pretty quiet, that's really different than the sterile experimental conditions of quiet that were studied here. And that's like, that's not a flaw for their design, but that does have implications for how we think about it as teachers. Having music has a cost compared to perfect quiet. Yeah. That's okay. Like I, I have no qualms. Like, yeah, they, they laid it out really clearly. And having less predictable noise has a higher cost. And their, especially their second experiment showed that beautifully. It's so, I just, I, I love when people use randomization in interesting or clever ways. Their second experiment, they took that same Mozart sonata and they chopped it up into little bitty pieces and shuffled it. So you had to be listening to like a completely randomized sequence of sounds that in one particular order was the sonata, but this is all jumbled up. And so it's all like very chaotic and I would imagine really unpleasant to listen to. And then you saw persistent and negative impacts just like the first time having heard it. You never saw the benefit of familiarity. And so what I take from both of those things together is if I have to choose between a song I know intimately well and a relatively quiet but still somewhat chaotic classroom environment, I don't take for granted that the highly familiar song isn't the better of those two choices. Yeah, yeah I see what you're saying. Um, I see what you're saying. Especially since repetition of that familiar song reduces the its own impact over time. Whereas the unpredictable things, you can't reduce their impact because they are by nature unpredictable. Um, last year with my avid kids, I didn't, I didn't encourage them to, to do a play playback. We listened to this. It's a nine hour loop. And they were studying to this. 
And I don't know how long the loop is before it resets itself. But you know what key it's going to be in. You know what the chords are going to be. And it, we just listened to this for an hour while they studied. And they got up and they had conversations. And they, But this was the background music. Well, this year, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to give them a little more power. Give them a little more influence. I'm going to tell them they, if they want to listen when we're having focused study time, they want to listen to their own music, that's fine. As long as, A, it doesn't have any lyrics. Um, that was my stipulation. Well, I now know that's not the guidance I should be giving them. I can give them better guidance than that in terms of them curating their own their own playlist. But I'm too far deep. I can't go back. I cannot rescind that power that I've given them. So I'm probably going to have to call it a wash for the rest of this. And when it comes up, I can say, well, you know, we can advise this. But it, if they are, if they've got their study playlist and that's the playlist that they're familiar with and that's the one that they're using and they use that this year and next year and their senior year and their freshman year of college and their sophomore year of college, then the back of their mind is going to be pretty comfortable with the predictability of that music. And it's probably not going to be the big cost that it, it would be if I was do, playing dueling Mozart pianos. Mm -hmm. So uh, I probably am not going to change it this cycle, but I'm going to be more specific about their playlist curation in my next Avid group so that they, they have that information from the beginning because I have definitely learned that going backwards is so hard. And I can think of like, what music do I use when I want to help myself focus? Like if I'm in the office, but I'm doing a deep analysis. And so I like, I put on my headphones, I want to block out the world. And I put on a very specific flavor of playlist. And I swear, I swear to you, there are times I don't know what songs I've listened to. Like I've been working for an hour and I couldn't list two songs I've heard because it is so deeply familiar to me that it disappears into the background. And I recognize that a piece of their study was, do you like the music? And there's a big difference in how much people think the music is impacting them as a distraction yeah. based on whether they like it. So the, the, what we, you know, for further study, what we need to do is change, change the treatments, you know, this new drug is better than placebo, but is it better than aspirin, right? It's right. that question. So like, can we have a track of random background noises like people shuffling, walking to and from the pencil sharpener, uh, people sneezing, chairs being screeched along the floor? Like, can we have, amb is there an ambient classroom sound track out there that exists? And we can then have the difference is familiar low tempo music familiar high tempo music unfamiliar low tempo music from uh, unfamiliar high tempo music and ambient classroom sounds what are the difference between those would be a really uh exciting next step uh bringing us closer to a classroom environment listen plan and play How was the beer? Man, I'll tell you what. So I really enjoy unfiltered beers, and this one comes through with uh, some of the sweetness that I expect in unfiltered beers. And I think that's about as much as I got. I, I drank it fast. Uh, yeah, it uh, visually, it's it's definitely uh, big, chunky unfiltered. Like, it's not just mildly unfiltered. Like, you see floaters in there, and the floaters are big. It just gave me the sensation of being cool. I don't know if that was just because it was refrigerated, but it, was, it just had this, like, smooth coolness. It has this warm orange flavor. 
Um, it was sour earlier in the flavor, but then it ends sweeter. I'm sure that that's part of the, uh, I think it's an eight point something percent APV. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about uh, the Rochefort Abbey, uh, which was founded in 15 something something, 1595. They've been doing this off and on since this time. So it hasn't been like the same beer since 1595. They've been off and on. Our beer advisor, Aaron Matthew, informed me that one of the things that can happen with Trappist is because they're kind of old school about things. So they are definitely shipping in glass, which is... Um, susceptible both to gas exchange in the caps and sunlight uh, complications. They might have a lot of bitter skunkiness that isn't part of the original flavor. So thanks for tuning in for another month. We've you know we've gone deep and we appreciate the feedback on the growth mindset literature and especially from the researchers and authors who are doing that work. And I think it's just another manifestation of our interest and our inclination to engage with all of you. So if you've got questions or if you've got papers that you think we ought to be reading, please let us know. You can drop those in the comments at twopintplc.com so we can be responsive to what everything, uh, everything that would be of interest to you and help you advance your practice. We will see you next month. As we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.